Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Life, or began in 2022. What came to an end? Is there something that died in your life? 2022. Now, continue to just be in a reflective mode. Pause a little longer. Because tomorrow, we open the books on 2023. What feelings or emotions do you have as you look ahead to the next year? Most of us have mixed feelings. There's a tension of optimism mixed with a little bit of uncertainty or worry. What needs to begin or come to life in 2023 in your life? What needs to end? Is there something that needs to die in your life in 2023? You can open your eyes. I think it's kind of interesting to get a chance to worship together on the last day of a year. And today, we are going to actually finish one year, and tomorrow we'll awaken to another year. And it's helpful, even though it's really just going from a Saturday to a Sunday, some people don't make much of these turning of the calendar. It's just an arbitrary day. But I think these things are helpful. God builds those rhythms of renewal and new starts into our lives because he knows that we need them psychologically and emotionally. There are things that we need to leave behind in the last year, things that we wish we could forget, things that we need to put away, but they're hard to put away. They want to follow us. And then there are things that we're afraid of but need to see spring to life in us. We've had a practice at Harvest for several years now of encouraging our people to think of a word or a short phrase that is aspirational for the coming year, a word that will help guide how you pray, how you live, how you think, a word that frames your hopes and goals spiritually or personally for the coming year. And we've set up a little thing. It's, we want to do a, a little word cloud exercise today where we're going to invite you to give some input as you think about a word that's aspirational for you in 2023, a word God has laid on your heart that you hope, you know, like Joe in his video, future Joe saying to past Joe, trust is a good word for you. And having walked with Joe for a year, it was kind of prophetic that trust was his word for the year. I saw that play out again and again and again in his life. So it's not like we're just speaking will to power and materializing things, but these are words that frame the way that we hope in God for the coming year. You can can use the QR code or just the link that's up on the left, and we want to ask you to give maybe one or up to two words or short phrases And as we do that, we will build the word cloud on the screen, and and you'll see what God is laying on the hearts of your brothers and sisters here. And we'll do that for a couple minutes. We're going to play some music. And why don't you just grab your phone and spend a little time doing that. We'll see what God is laying on our hearts, and then I'll speak. 
You know, as we um, look ahead to a new year tomorrow, I wanted to share with you some words of encouragement and invitation from a passage that is probably familiar to most of you. It's Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. From this passage, I want to draw out three things that I think are really good for us to think about as we face a new year. And the first is his call to run the race that is set before you. You might not believe it looking at me now, but when I was in junior high, I ran track and field. And, uh, well, I did track, not the field part. <laughs> All that stuff looked too dangerous and difficult for me. But I ran track as a sprinter. I did the 100 meter and the 200 meter. And my favorite moment as a sprinter was that moment just before the starting gun went off when all the runners were down on our blocks and I was looking down the line at everyone I was going to run against and all the muscles were coiled for action and there was this anticipation and this curiosity burning in me. How am I going to do? What place am I going to come in? Am I going to embarrass myself or am I going to shine? And so there was all this tension and excitement and fear all wrapped up and I love that set of emotions. And so for me, the running of the race itself was almost anticlimactic. It was the anticipation of the race that got me all wound up. The start of the new year has always felt a little bit like that for me. But as I've gotten older, I'm coming to realize that sprinting is actually not a really good metaphor for how life works. I've never enjoyed long-distance running. I've never been good at it. But long-distance runners tell me that that is a much better metaphor for the way life feels and ought to be approached. I think it's a much better way to envision the race that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. Now, when you think about it, if you look at a marathon, which is the standard long-distance race, the one that we kind of measure, they say that less than 1% of the American population has finished a marathon. So it's not like a majority experience. Very few of us will do it in our lifetime. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have finished a marathon? Anyone? Oh, look at that. We have more than 1%. So we're doing well above national average. But if you've run a marathon, there are certain things you learn about yourself and about life which are not really available except in theory to those who haven't. And long-distance running is really the best metaphor when we think about the race of life that the scriptures speak of to describe what life is supposed to be in Christ. In any marathon, 
the top echelon of runners are going to be running competitively. They're thinking about their time. They want to beat the other people, set records. But the vast majority of people entering any marathon, with exception of maybe Boston. Boston, you've got to qualify to get in. All of those people are already top-tier runners. But every other marathon, the majority of people entering, their only hope is to finish. That's all they want to do. And they say about 95% do manage to finish the marathon. 5% will drop out before the end. But it's not an easy thing to do. Even if you get partway through, it's a huge accomplishment. The thing that I've noticed, though, is as a sprinter, I'm constantly thinking of everyone else in the race as my competition. I'm thinking how I'm going to beat her. I'm running against everyone. But in a marathon, for the majority of people, they draw energy from the fact that they're not running alone. If people ran a marathon solo, I think they would find it much more difficult than running with hundreds of other people around them. Because in a marathon, a big part of it is you're not running against each other, you're running with each other. And that's really emblematic of the kind of race the writer of Hebrews is describing here. Look at the heavy use of the first person plural pronouns in in just this one verse alone. It says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so let us also lay aside everything that hinders, and let us run with endurance the race set out for us. This is a really important element of the race of Christian life, is that we're not running it against everyone else. There is no competition here. The whole point is to finish and to finish together. But there's another element of this that that I want to point out, this idea of a race set out for you. And I think a video will help me set up this point best. I want you to check out this video clip. Okay, so (laughs) that's a football game that happened between the Minnesota Vikings and the San Francisco 49ers on October 25th, 1964. And the person who made that mistake is one of the greatest football players that ever played the game. He was defensive end (laughs) Jim Marshall. And he was one of the greatest defensive players ever. When he recovered the fumble, what he said later in interviews is he saw the goalpost, and in the heat of the moment, he saw daylight, and he just ran. And he ran with all his might, and he thought, I am creaming everybody. It's just open sky, green fields. And he thought that he had basically... Kind of like a pick six. He thought he had scored a touchdown, six points for his team. He actually scored a safety and gave two points to the other team. And even though he had a very distinguished career of 20 years in the NFL, that one play earned him the nickname Wrong Way Jim. It's a bad sign when you do something great and the first person to congratulate and thank you is the opposing team's player. See, I think what that reminds me of is that what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what God himself is saying to us, isn't just pick some race you want to run and run it the best that you can. I think that's the way a lot of us have approached our lives in different seasons, is we found something that energizes us, and we decided that's what my life's going to be for, and I'm going to cream it, I'm going to win that race. And we do all our best with all our might, and we do succeed, we win the race, and we turn around wondering, did we do well? And we found out that we're running the wrong way. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us that running intensely, running with commitment matters, but it only matters if you're running the race that is actually set out for you. The race you were called to run, the right way in the right direction, what you're supposed to be doing. What Jim Marshall reminds us of is that running successfully in the wrong direction is not a victory at all. 
What is the race that is set out for us? Because it's clear that what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what God is saying through this person, is that the goal of life's race isn't simply to run well, but first to identify what is it that the race is for you. And it might be slightly different things for all of us, but there are some things that are universal for every one of us. Things that mark out the race for every Christ follower. There are many things you can run for or run towards with your life. I'll bet you right now, most of us, we may not even be the best person to describe what we're running for. The people who could probably give us the most accurate answer are the people close to us. I I will share a transparent and embarrassing story. When my kids were, when Noah was about four years old, I came home one day, and he was imitating me. He put on a play, play a pair of glasses, and he picked up a little box, and he goes, I'm daddy, here I go to the video store. I thought, good Lord, am I going to Blockbuster that often that my son wants to imitate me? <laughs> and he's saying, I'm going to the video store. Because I would bring home DVDs pretty regularly. I think the people around us could probably offer some really accurate insights into what you actually live for, what you're running towards. And it might be helpful to listen to them because probably the people who love you most have been trying to say some of those things to us to reflect back to us what it seems like we're living for. I've received some really, really important feedback this past year that was different from how I saw myself. And I realized that if you really want a good look at yourself, You can't only look at the mirror on your own. You need other people to reflect back to you what is true about you. That's been a very important, positive thing for me in the last year. What is the race set out for every Christian? Is there some commonality we all share? I think the Apostle Paul says it really, really well. In Acts 20, 24, he says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race. What is that race? To complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, don't get that the wrong way. He's not just saying that his whole race in life is to deliver a verbal message. That's not at all. That's why he chose to use the word testify. Because it's not just our words that testify to the grace of God. It's the way that we live. It's the way that we respond to life's ups and downs. The grace of God is on display through our lives when we're living in Christ. And that's the race set out for each of us, is that our lives get to be a visual illustration of the goodness and grace of God for all humanity. The goal of our lives is somehow through the ups and the downs, our lives display the grace of God to other people. One of the ways that that happens is by the way that we receive forgiveness and are freed. You know, when you find out that you've hurt someone or done something wrong to them and they point it out to you, isn't it really hard to face them? Even though they say verbally, I forgive you, it's really hard to rekindle that relationship, isn't it? It's embarrassing. You feel a sense of loss, of shame, of hesitation. 
And the grace of God is the same way. Like when, we, when God says, I forgive you, we don't always believe it, but there's a freedom that comes from truly receiving the grace of God that allows you to stand back up and face life again, even though you know you've totally blown it. I've met people who have confessed terrible things they did and shared it with me and said, I, I asked God to forgive me, and I felt like he did, but I've never really been able to recover. And I just want to encourage you to know that when God forgives you, there is power and freedom in that. One of the ways we display the grace of God is not how we wear our successes, but how we get up after our failures. How we face other people after great loss, after terrible mistakes. Even when the consequences follow us, the grace of God is on display in our lives in the way that we face the bad things in life. A lot of people in the evangelical world seem to believe that the only way to show God's glory is to show highlight reels like we just did on that video, to show only the good things that happen in our lives. But the one way that I see so often that the grace of God is put on display to our world through the church is the way that we recover from conflict. The, the way that we give and receive forgive, forgiveness from one another and even from God. There are so many other ways that the grace of God is put on display. I'm not going to go through all of them, but suffice it to say that this is the race marked out for us, is that somehow the quest of our whole lives should be to show the world that is watching that God is full of grace, especially for those who need it the most. That's something we all need to remember because we forget that so quickly and we live without grace towards one another or even towards ourselves. Run the race set out before you. And that race is for your life and my life to put on display to the world the grace of God. Now, if that's the goal of life, the second thing we see in this passage is that we are meant to lay aside everything that hinders us in the running of that race. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who have already come before us and finished the race successfully, they're cheering us on, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I'll never forget this day when I was a senior in high school. My friend Mac walked into class, and he was completely hairless. It was just a weird thing. Like he's he's about six foot four. The guy walks in in shorts and a tank top, and he's as hairless as can be. And the re- reason we notice is because he wasn't just bald; his eyebrows were gone. We're like, bro, what is going on with you? He was a state champion swimmer. He was a very very good swimmer. And the state meet was coming up, and he said, I shaved everything. And we're like, everything is everything. There is not an external follicle left on my body. In fact, he said that he used Nair to get everything off because he wanted to be like a porpoise through the water. No drag, nothing slowing down. I'm like, do your eyebrows cause that much drag in the water? But this still is burned in my mind as a symbol of total commitment to the race. This brother wanted to shave off 0.001 seconds from his time by getting rid of his eyebrows. Do you know how weird you look without eyebrows? I couldn't stop looking at him the whole class. I'm like, that just doesn't look human. I'm so used to eyebrows. And to me, that's it. He was so committed 
to this one single-minded quest in his life that anything that might hinder him, he shed, no matter how distracting it might be for the rest of us to look at. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the only way to honor God, but that's the heart that I think is being described here, is that if you really care about the race set out before you, then you won't run with extra baggage that you don't need to be carrying. It's interesting that there's no moral value attached to the weights here. He's saying lay aside every weight that doesn't help you run this particular race. Some of those weights are not morally bad things, and this is what is so confusing for us, I think. Because we can point to those things we're carrying around and say, what's wrong with it? Is there something morally evil? And that's maybe the wrong question. The question is not, is everything in our lives morally justifiable or morally reprehensible? That's not the central question. It's, does it help me run the race which God has set me out to run? Many of you know this at the professional level. Many of you know this at the family level. If you're a parent, aren't there like a million things you could do with your life that you've chosen not to? Because you need to make some space to take care of these little ones. I think moms are heroes. They especially understand this because moms could have a life, but the second that kid arrives, you kind of have way less of a life. It's not that you don't have the capacity to learn another language or start a business. It's that you don't have the bandwidth if you take seriously, right? I mean, it's really hard to try to juggle all that. And so many parents make all kinds of sacrifices. Even the parents who work, they come home, all they want to do is rest, and they give their best to their kids. That's heroic to me. In your business, if you really want to succeed, you can't constantly do other stuff. You can't be a person who watches 16 hours of Netflix a week and succeed in business. You just can't do it. It requires more than that. Anyone who has set their mind to a single-minded, focused goal knows you can't have everything and run that race. There's a lot of dead weight you have to shed in order to get there. And it's no less true of the spiritual life. If the spiritual life and the calling of God on you matters, it's really important that you shed any weight that you don't need to be carrying that gets in the way of you running that particular race. Now, as I say all these things, you've got to hear this the right way. We're not just talking about religious activity. We're talking about the things that keep your life from displaying to others and even to yourself the grace of God. He also says that sin is the same way. There are many things that are morally neutral, things maybe even we, we added onto our lives to protect us and to benefit us. I always think of King, King, remember David before he was King David? He wanted to fight Goliath, and King Saul gave him his armor, and as a young man, it was way too big for him. The sword was too heavy for him, and so he took off all of it, and he just picked up a little sling and some stones, and he slew the giant. Sometimes the things we add on that are meant to benefit us are actually weighing us down and preventing the very thing we're after. Sin is a similar thing. And that, that language clings so closely, the NIV translates it entangles. It's like trying to run a race with your shoelaces tied together. It restricts your movement. You can do it, but you'll be, you'll be running like this. It, it's not exactly an effective way to run. You can still make forward progress, but it will be nothing like what you need it to be. It might seem simple to identify these hindrances. 
And the most obvious ones are. But I think the things that block the grace of God from being put on display in our lives are more subtle, more internal than that. The obvious things I think are easy to spot. If I have like a serious bad addiction, a habit, those things are generally known to me. They're probably known to everyone else around me. But the things that hold us back the most are probably things that exist just outside of our conscious level. Subtle things, little things that people maybe have tried to drop hints, but they're they're the kind of things that no other human being can actually get you to acknowledge. Because these are the things that you cannot see about yourself until you earnestly seek it and God reveals it. What we're talking about is self-awareness at a deep, deep level. And most people who study self-awareness sociologically will, will agree with me. Self-awareness is very broadly claimed and very rarely had. Everyone believes they're self-aware, and we all are to an extent. But the stuff that's actually holding us down and holding us back, those are not things that are part of what we all know about. There are these things that are subtle. We don't realize they're holding us back because we don't see those things as harmful or hindering. We see them as benefits, accessories for our lives. Sometimes they're so deep in us, they're so close to our hearts, we can't afford to see them or let them go. This year, because I was triggered, and not triggered in a negative sense, I mean activated to seek these things by the feedback of others, I was hearing things about me that were very opposite of how I see myself. Have you ever had that experience? Where someone says, you're like this, and you're like, no, I'm not. I, I work hard as I can not to be that. No, but you are. You're like, no, I'm not. And after, after you have this whole fight with that person and with yourself, you kind of think about it. You go, Maybe it's true of me more than I realize. That there are things others pick up in us that we're not ready to admit to ourselves, but just because a person pointed it out doesn't mean you could really own it or see it. It begins the process of real seeking of the truth about ourselves. And then only God can reveal the full truth to us about ourselves and about our reality. There are things hidden inside of us, things that affect other people, things that are holding you back that are not available to you yet, that are just outside of your consciousness. And if you're, if you're sitting there right now hearing this and your first thought is, oh, I know someone who needs to hear this. I know someone who that's true of. Probably the case that you're more needful to attend to yourself. If your first thought is always, who else needs to be convicted by this? Because I think that was my mindset for a long time. Oh, I know someone who needs to hear that. I realized this year I needed to hear a lot of this stuff. And it wasn't until I started earnestly seeking the the truth about me that I saw some things I didn't want to see. But I needed to see those things. They were holding so much back. They were hindering my race. I'm not out of the woods there yet. It's not a simple process. But these things that we are, that are just outside of the periphery of our vision, that we sense are, there's something there, but I don't know what it is, those things are revealed to us progressively. They're not things that we see right away in full. I'm always reminded of that healing of a blind man. Jesus healed a blind man uh, in the city of Bethsaida, and it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 8. When you look at these verses, here's how it happened. 
In this case, this is kind of the grossest healing. He took saliva and spit in the guy's eyes, and then he rubbed his eyes, and then he got healed. I'm not sure that would be my chosen method, but um, that's the way Jesus chose to heal this guy. And after the first application of saliva, I mean, that's holy saliva there, but still, it's saliva. He put it on his eyes, and he goes, now open your eyes. What do you see? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Now, right there, pause. Because for an optometrist, it's like, oh, big fail, but that's a miracle. You went from seeing nothing to seeing vague shapes. You begin to sense the outlines of something important. I never saw that before. Those must be people. They look like trees. I'm not sure how a blind guy knows what trees look like either. Because what he's saying is they don't look like people yet, but I can sense they're people because trees don't move around. So Jesus goes, all right, first one didn't take, and he spits on the guy's eye again, puts his hand on the eye again, and then he goes, now look up. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eye. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And listen, he saw everything clearly. This is a powerful experience when it happens to you. When something that was holding you down and holding you back that was always just outside the periphery of your consciousness, is made known by God. And so often, this is the way it works with God. He shows you the big things first. Because we can't handle the full clarity most of the time. If I saw right early on when the person challenged me, if I saw the full weight of what it revealed about me, I don't think I would have been able to handle it. I probably would have attacked that person back. Maybe I did. God in his mercy allows us to see progressively what we can handle. But if we stay at it, eventually we'll go from seeing big shapes to seeing with clarity. And here's the truth. We cannot afford to live our lives not seeing that stuff. Because you have no idea what it's costing us, costing the people around us. There are people we care about whose lives are made more difficult because we have blind spots we haven't looked for. We haven't invited God to show us in that darkness as the light of the world. We haven't invited him to show us, this is how you affect people. This is how you mute the glory of God that needs to be on display through your life. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's a judgmental spirit. I'm finding all these things in myself. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a tendency that's becoming a habit that is now morphing into full-blown addiction, bondage over your life. But these things weigh us down, and if we don't see them, they will hinder us in the running of the very race to which God has called us. Let me finish this way. The last thing the writer of Hebrews really gives us here is he says, if you want to make it to the end of this race, you got to keep looking to Jesus. The NIV has it differently. I kind of like the NIV's wording as well. It says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because that Greek word translated look is not a casual glance. It's a laser-focused... Like, have you ever seen a lion on the hunt and those BBC... Uh, Planet Earth specials, the lion sees it just like this. I mean, that's like Mike Singletary eyes. You know, like, I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to eat you. That's focus. 
It's that kind of look, like zeroed in. I'm, I'm locked onto this. When I was a sprinter, I found that it was easy to keep the goal in mind because there's only 100 yards down there. I could always see the finish line. Sprinters have it easy because from the start of the race to the end, I see exactly where I'm going and I can see where everyone else is. Long-distance runners don't have it so easy because the finish line might be 26 miles. Listen, I get sleepy driving 26 miles. Do you realize how much endurance it takes to run 26 miles? And anyone who's run a marathon will tell you that there are seasons to the race, passages in that race where you'll have a completely different experience. And so the motivation set for the long-distance runner is way different than for the sprinter. For the long-distance runner, the longer you run, the harder it gets. Pain and weariness set in, and when pain and weariness set into us as human beings, we question why we're running at all. Every runner who's not a professional has asked themselves mid-marathon, why am I doing this? Who told me I had to do this? Why was this a good idea before? Because struggle weakens us. It makes us want to question why we're doing it at all. That's very natural. The longer a race lasts, the more important it is for us to have a motivation that can keep driving us to run because the longer a race is, the easier quitting becomes. Have any of you felt that in your life? You know, when you're starting out with, uh, at, the, at the wedding altar and you have so much optimism, you have every intention to be at your best, but the longer it goes, the harder it gets. When you're at the hospital and that baby first comes out, you're like, oh, I'm going to be the parent of the century. But man, it goes years and years and years. When you buy a new house and you're like, oh, I'm going to keep this house so clean. I'm going to be Bob Vila and do all the projects. And you're like, after a while, like, I don't care anymore. Recently, I got a new car and I thought I'm going to keep this so clean. And then winter came and I just don't care. This dried up slush all over the place. Just this nature of a long thing is that giving up becomes easier the longer you go. Unless you have a compelling motivation that stays in view. For some of you, in areas of your life, maybe including the spiritual, that's been the, the case for you. The reason you're still going is because you have never forgotten the why. How many of you feel that's true of your professional life, your business? Yeah. It's really important that you keep that in focus. For, for the, the race spiritually that defines the whole of our lives as Christ followers, it's really important that we have a lasting, enduring motivation. I'm not just talking about the fatigue that settles in because you've been volunteering at seeds too much or you're just tired from religious activity. I'm not talking about that kind of fatigue. I'm talking about the soul weariness that sets in when you're trying so hard to hang on to faith and it feels like God is gone. Like I've been trying everything in my power to give God the glory and the honor in my life, yet this bad stuff keeps happening to me. How do I hang on to faith? when it seems like no matter how hard I try to honor God, it doesn't feel like God's honoring me back. How do I hang on to faith when I still love Christ, but his church and the other Christians around me discourage me at every opportunity? 
It's that kind of soul weariness, that temptation to go, I give up on all this. It's not worth it. I don't need the drama, the hassle. It'd be easier to just withdraw inward, live for myself and by myself. That kind of soul weariness will tempt us to give up running the race. And if we're going to get through that, we need a real motivation, not the church, not other Christians. Those things affect us. Don't get me wrong. We have huge responsibilities to encourage and support each other. But the church and other Christians are all, by definition, imperfect and flawed. If you anchor your hope to them, you will stop running at some point. I guarantee you that. The only lasting, enduring motivation for this race that lasts a lifetime is the perfect one, Christ, who has given up everything for us. Now, I know that's a really churchy thing to say, so let me, let me break it down in a way that I think is more emotionally engaging. This past Thursday, we had a memorial service for a woman who was very dear to me. It may not sound like it when I describe to you who she was to me, but she was my brother's wife's mother. But she was somebody I saw all the time. Our extended family is very tight. And she's someone that I grew up seeing and thinking almost like she was another mom to me. As we laid her to rest on Thursday, my brother gave the homily at the memorial service. And at that service, he quoted from a book that he and I had read years ago. And I found it really stirring. It moved me a a, a lot. So I wanted to share that with you. This comes from my brother's homily on Thursday, but it comes from a book called Lament for a Son, written by Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a Yale theologian and philosopher, and he's someone who had studied God for many, many years, but had not fully encountered God until a terrible tragedy befell his life. While on vacation mountain climbing, his son Eric fell to his death from a mountain. And Professor Wolterstorff, though he was a professor at an Ivy League divinity school, could not make sense of the God he'd known and taught for all these years in the face of such terrible loss. And he went through a really dark season wrestling with his grief, questioning God, trying to figure out, because he knew all the right answers intellectually, but he couldn't reconcile that with what it felt like to have served God his whole life and have lost his beautiful son in such a weird way. In one particularly moving passage, he writes this in the book, Lament for a Son. How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number, to be painfully snapped. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear. These are the kind of words professional Christian leaders are afraid to say and write because they reveal doubt, struggle. But I think it's important and honest that we acknowledge we felt those things before. We've asked that same question. And he wrestled through a really, really dark time. And finally, his wrestling brought him to the foot of the cross. And here's what he wrote. But instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself. 
scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. A new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. In great mystery, to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. This is the great hope that the writer of Hebrews is holding out to us, is that everyone else around you, the church, other Christians, the chaos of this broken world, the best that they can offer is sympathy. Maybe, if they're very advanced, they can offer empathy at some level. But this God to whom we cry out in our pain and weariness has suffered with us in a way that no one else ever will. He has suffered for us in a way that no one else ever will. And if we cannot find comfort and motivation from him, we will not find it anywhere else in this world. And so he holds out to us the only enduring, lasting motivation for a race that is meant to last a lifetime. No other motivation will hold you this long, this strongly. And so he comes to a close with verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And isn't it true that the things that weaken us most in this race are not just the hardness of life. We can handle most of that. It's the hardness of other people, the pain that we cause each other, the discouragement and hurt and offense, the wounds which come to us at the hands of people we might even call brother or sister, maybe even pastor. And when we're enduring those things and feeling tempted to quit, we're reminded that Jesus himself endured such hostility that was undeserved. And to remember him can help us to endure and not grow weary or faint-hearted. Tomorrow we start a new year. I know a lot of people protect their hearts by not having aspirations or goals or resolutions. But I think it's a, a practice of faith that we hope for things we can't control or guarantee. It's one of the hallmarks of being a Christian is that we have the audacity to hope for things we cannot make happen. Those words and short phrases we put up on that word cloud, they can be powerful things because they tell us what we are asking God to do in our lives. In addition to weight loss or career advancement or maybe milestones in our family's lives, all good things, can I encourage you to take stock of where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ? 
Because the renewal that most carries us through life is not financial or professional or even social. The renewal we most need is in our innermost being. Out of that place, everything else in our lives flows. And that place belongs uniquely, solely to Jesus Christ. So as we close the books on this year and face a new year, that's my invitation to you, church. It's the invitation I'm taking up for myself. Because this year I've come to realize that this many years into the Christian journey, so much growth remains. How about you? I started this journey in 1984. I thought I'd be much further along. The grace of God is this. No matter how late you are in the race, you keep running. Don't stop running. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I want to invite you to take a minute, just in the quietness of this moment. Um, I think God, in addition to what I've been saying up here, I trust that God may have been stirring some things up inside of you. I want to invite you to respond to the voice of God in your innermost being. And if there's a commitment you want to make or an acknowledgement you want to offer up to God, take this moment just to do that. We're going to have some music playing, but let's take a minute or two just to respond to God in our own hearts, and then we'll close out our service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.